Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so glad you found us. This is a place where real women share real stories about real hope. Tonight, I have Chris here with me, and I got to meet Chris because of another speaker, and I met that speaker because of another speaker, and on and on it goes. But welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Before we dive into your story, will you introduce yourself to the listeners? Absolutely. Hi, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Chris. And let's see, I live in Oregon, very near you in the Portland area. I have been married for 20 years, uh, almost to my husband, Todd, and we are a blended family. We've got two adult boys and two adult girls. They've all left the home. We also have a cat named Sasha. She's still here with us though. She hasn't (laughs) left the nest yet. (laughs) And I am a a betrayal, transformation, and identity coach. It's what I do for a living. In my free time, I enjoy gardening and reading. I'm like researchy books. I'm a nerd when it comes to fun facts. And yeah, and my husband and I recently started playing pickleball along with the whole rest of the world. So (laughs) the rest of the world. (laughs) That's a little bit about me. That's amazing. Well, some of the things you just mentioned, gardening, pickleball, and so forth, most women have heard of and probably can identify with. However, Your job is one that I am willing to guess most listeners don't really even know what that means. So ladies, if you're going, what, what does she do? What does that mean? How, I don't understand. Hold tight. We'll get there. (laughs) But really your calling and your passion for this work and all the things that, that God's really done in your story, it all starts back in your childhood as most stories do. Mm -hmm. So we're going to rewind the tape. And we're going to start at a pretty hard to hear episode, really, from when you were four years old. Yeah, that's right. Four years old. Yeah. My dad was an insurance agent. We moved a lot. But at the time that this story takes place, we were living in Las Vegas. I was four years old with my mom and dad. And we were at a restaurant, as best as I can remember, somewhere on the Las Vegas Strip. I have fond memories, actually, of living there as a kid. I'd want to go see the pretty lights, and my uh, parents would put me in the car, and we'd go drive down the Strip. (laughs) It was a little less, it was a little tamer back then than it is now, Uh, a little safer for kids. But anyway, we were at a restaurant, and I had my, I remember I had my dad on my right side and my mom on my left, and we were at a table with other people. I don't remember who the other people were, but I know that we were at a table with, it seems like eight to 10 folks and the place was full and I was eating and out of nowhere, I had this sharp pain in my right hand. I, I looked over and my father had stabbed me in the back of my hand with his fork and I remember that's my earliest childhood memory of my father. I have earlier childhood memories of other things, but that's the earliest of my dad. And I remember as a four-year-old feeling shock, feeling disappointment, physical pain. But I think the biggest emotion I felt of all was embarrassment. I was so embarrassed. And I remember thinking, not cognizantly, but sort of subconsciously, you're my 
father, you're my daddy. You're supposed to protect me. So yeah, that's my earliest childhood memory of my dad is getting stabbed in the back of my hand with a fork. I do want to interject here and say that, you know, this story is so much more about what God has done through it and with it and less about my dad. And I, I do want to let your listeners know that I love my dad. Uh, he passed away about almost three years ago now, two and a half years ago, and he finished so well. He uh, was a broken man with wounds and traumas of his own. Um, he tried really hard and he did the best he could with what he had. And when he knew better, he did better. The last two and a half years of his life on this planet, he read a beautiful book that I would love to shout out called Imagine Heaven by Pastor John Burke. Uh, it's near-death experience stories. And uh, oh boy, that book increased my faith. But we, my sisters and I gave that to my father for his 75th birthday. He read that book. He resonated with one of the people that, uh, one of the storytellers in that book. And and it changed him. He something clicked, and he he got it. He he came alive, and he was able to to reconcile with us, to ask forgiveness. He pursued God, and he finished real well. So, I just want to let everyone know that. So, back to my story. Here's little four year old me getting stabbed in the back of the hand, and I will say that my mom uh, was shocked and dismayed as well, and came to my rescue and asked him, you know, emphatically, "Why did you do that?" And his response was, she wasn't holding her fork correctly. And he was very emphatic about it. So I froze. And after that, I don't remember anything. Not that night, not for years after that. I don't remember a lot of those early years. I think the next time I have a memory is I'm eight. That's a, a long time to go without memories. And but before going into anything else about the trauma responses and so forth. I just want to thank you for kind of giving the happy, hopeful ending of the story up front. Mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. for some of us, it can be really hard to start in stories like this. And it can be triggering and people may have similar stories. Uh, but when we share these stories, again, for those of you who are new to the podcast, try and think of this podcast a little bit like you would maybe a Hallmark movie or a Disney movie where you know there's going to be a happy, hopeful ending. <laughs> <laughs> that's you just you know it because we're we, we're gonna get there yeah so, yeah I appreciate you giving just kind of that encouragement so people can take kind of take a, a breath and listen and go okay yeah there's a bit of a miracle there at the end with your dad's mm -hmm. life but you you froze mm -hmm. as a little girl now I know some people have heard of fight flight freeze mm -hmm. and I know that you are pretty well versed now in some of these trauma responses. Is there anything you maybe want to touch on or describe maybe for those people who've never heard of this before? I would love to do that. So the four main trauma responses are fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. So if, you're, if your trauma response is fighting, that's characterized by confrontation, anger outbursts, explosive behavior, defensiveness, sometimes bullying. Flight response is avoidance, overthinking. Oftentimes someone in flight mode is going to have high anxiety, maybe even panic attacks, difficulty sitting still and, and high energy. You want to run. A freeze response, which is what I did when my dad stabbed me with a fork, was I shut down, uh, I disassociated, people will isolate, even if it's if just mentally, maybe not physically, go numb, 
and like, you just kind of blank out and have difficulty thinking. I cried when this happened to me and I just sat there kind of with my eyes blinking, bewildered. So that was a freeze response. Very quickly after that, I developed um, my go-to is fawning and that's spelled F-A-W-N. So fawning has uh, characteristics of people pleasing. Usually the person has a lack of identity, uh, very little boundaries to no boundaries, uh, codependency. And I know that's kind of a buzzword these days that people don't like it very much, but high dependence on other people, finding your identity through someone else, not within yourself and hugely conflict avoidant. I would go along to get along all the time. So yeah, that's a little bit about the trauma responses. Well, I appreciate you sort of setting that context again, because listeners can be coming in from, maybe they're experts in this, maybe they've never heard of it before. So Mm -hmm. now that we all have the information, Mm -hmm. we're kind of going to jump all the way forward a bit in your life story, but then go back again. You, you just described a trauma response from when you were four years old, just three years ago, you Mm -hmm. experienced another trauma and that then triggered a whole new, really eventual healing for Mm -hmm. you. Yeah. So about three years ago, I did experience another trauma that knocked me on my, on my patootie (laughs) It knocked me, knocked me over. And, uh, about a year and a half into therapy, uh, my counselor asked me a question that I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, Chris, I wonder if you had had a healthier relationship with your dad, how you would have responded to this current trauma differently, because it really sunk me. It really, it really rocked my world. And that question, having some healing under my belt, when he asked it, made me very thoughtful about that. And I, and I, I got curious. I'm, I'm a, I went on a little adventure. Um, and so that made me curious. What do you mean? How would I have responded differently? And so as I did a deep dive into my own healing journey, I had a lot of discoveries and part of that all, you know, my, my father came down with two kinds of cancers. And so in the midst of me pursuing my own healing from this trauma three years ago, I had some amazing conversations with my father. Uh, one day in particular, we were on the phone for about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. And I was able to get vulnerable with him and he got vulnerable with me. And I was able to ask him questions I never could have when I was a kid. I remember writing my father letters as a teenager, high school age. I think I risked that four or five times. And his response, because my dad didn't know how to feel. And he didn't know how to be vulnerable and he didn't know how to be authentic would crumble the letters up and hand them back to me and say, don't be so complicated. So the message I got from that was stop feeling, stop thinking you're making a mess here. You're being squirrely, you know, color within the lines, do what you're supposed to do. So I came up with a really toxic phrase for myself. Kind of my motto was be a blessing and not a curse. And the thought that I could be a curse in the first place, you know, even though that was kind of a cutesy teenagery, you know, thing for me to say, and I was really proud of that saying, I look at it now and think, oh my goodness, poor me. You know, I feel bad for Chris as a 20 year older, as a young teenager, I was doing the best I could with what I had. So a little bit about my father, I think would be helpful at this point. So my dad, when we had this conversation as my dad is, you know, dying from cancer, I remember asking him, dad, what was your childhood like? 
I, I know a lot of the fun stories, shenanigans with he and his brother, you know, fun things that he did in college and, and whatnot. But tell me a little bit about some of the strife in your family. What were, what were some of the, the pain points that you had? And, and so he told me a few stories. One of them was that my great grandmother, so his grandma, uh, her name was Claire and my name is Christine Claire. So I'm named after, after her as are my, my daughters, but let's see, grandma Claire, the story is the oral history is that grandma Claire had a lot of money and she married grandpa Harry and he lost the money in the depression. And whether or not that's true, we, my sister and I have done deep dive research into our genealogy and family history. And whether or not that's true, we're not positive. We can't get any documentation on that. We have no proof of that, but it's still an oral history that's been handed down. But the takeaway is that my great grandmother was a very bitter, angry, impatient, resentful, and unforgiving woman. She didn't treat her husband well. And my father has memories of his brother, he and his brother going over to her house on Sunday nights. And they weren't allowed into this room. It was a living room. It was like a shrine. She had all of her tchotchkes in there and all of her fancy expensive things that she was able to salvage from whatever money that they, you know, the lifestyle that they lost. This was like a a shrine to days gone by and the boys weren't allowed in that room. And the message my father got from that was, you are going to mess this up. I don't, we don't trust you in this space and you're not worth it. These things are more important than you are. And kind of her attitude, uh, she wasn't warm and welcoming. She's not the, you know, the grandmother that we would all, you know, hope to have. So that, that made an impression on him and watching how his grandmother treated his very sweet grandfather really uh, upset him. So, you know, that was his mom's mother and that made an impression on my dad set a set a, a tone and a standard in the family. So my grandmother was trained into this system and therefore my father was trained in, into this family system. Later in life, I think my dad was about 14 or 15 years old. My grandfather had an affair. And one of the memories uh, that my dad told me about was being taken. He was the oldest boy the oldest child. And my grandmother wanted someone to see what she was to, to know what she knew. She wanted proof. And in those days you didn't air your dirty laundry. You didn't call up a friend and talk about what's going on in your marriage. You definitely didn't get therapy. That was a weakness. And, And you just, you kept it within the family unit. So that's what my grandmother was taught by her mom. And so she grabbed my dad. They went to this woman's house. He could see the curtains drawn but the lights were on and he could see his dad walking from the front of the house to the back of the bedroom with another woman. And then they got out of the car and my grandmother went in the house and brought my dad with her. They went into the bedroom and thankfully did not see anything happening taking place. But my grandmother kind of grabbed my dad by the shoulders and pushed him forward and said, there, now your son can see who you really are. That impacted my father. That was such a deep trauma. There was so much anger and talk about embarrassment and shame, toxic shame in that story for him. I remember, and then my dad told me that when my, my grandmother kicked my grandfather out of the house. And when my grandfather tried to come back, the boys, my dad and his little brother 
they're teenagers, they're football players, right? They, they basically lined back my grandpa and they kicked him out back out of the house. They wouldn't let him come back in because they were trying to defend their mother. So the system in this family line, it's a generational curse. Honestly, it was, we were trained. I was trained into this system. It was based on perfection and image being everything, do it perfectly, make us look good, no mistakes. And emotion is a weakness. Tears are not okay, especially if you're a boy and image is everything, which explains a little bit like etiquette was a big deal. My grandmother, it's interesting looking back, my, you would think that my grandpa and grandma were starlets. Like they could have hung out with Bing Crosby in the Rat Pack. They were glamorous. They were divine. Yeah. She was very elegant is a good word for her. And yeah, perfection and image were everything. I was trained into this system and I didn't feel as a kid that I had what it took to measure up to that. So fast forward a little bit to my dad's parenting of me now. Now he's training me in this family system. And my first memory is getting stabbed with a fork for not holding my fork correctly. Didn't have good manners at this table in front of all of his friends. And that was his limbic response. Yeah. I think that was a fight response. Uh, and he took it out on me. And I, I, I know looking back now as an adult and, and in, as I kind of reparent four-year-old Chris, uh, go back and talk to that little girl in my head. It wasn't my fault. Of course, this was a triggered response from my dad and a result of years of him avoiding therapy because he was told that was weak. So my dad was a very angry, arrogant, and impatient father. Now he had great moments too. He had moments where I remember breaking up with a boy in high school that I had been dating for quite a long time. I was heartbroken why he broke up with me and, and crying crocodile tears. I remember my dad taking me in the car to go get ice cream and giving me the, there's more fish in the sea and he's not worth it. And I'm so proud of you for, for, for saying no to him because he was pressuring me to have premarital sex. And I said, no. So uh, my dad could set my world straight in with a sentence as well. But the hard thing when you live with someone uh, where there's trauma is you never know what you're going to get. You never know if this is going to be the safe person, the hero that's coming, going to come in and rescue the day. If he's going to hug you or slug you, you just don't know. And, and physical abuse was something that was not incredibly frequent, but frequent enough that I remember some big, some, some times where I was hit or slapped uh, or things were thrown at me uh, that could have hurt me if they had had made contact. And, and so, yeah, I never knew what was going to set him off. So my reaction as I grew up in that system was uh, I became a people pleaser. So I learned really early to not make waves And, and my, the parts of fawning that I took on were being a good girl, avoiding conflict, definitely placating and wearing masks. I would morph. I'd be whoever that person, whoever I was with, whether it was friends at high, in high school or my dad or my, my mom, you know, whoever I would be, whatever they needed me to be. So I look back and there are plenty of moments of authenticity in my, in my life. You know, I definitely did have some good people in my life. I could be authentic with, but when it came to my dad and a few other authority figures in my life, I people pleased, I fawned, and I was 
So I was expert at it. I could teach classes on how to fawn effectively, (laughs) which is not a good thing. So, you know, one of the areas where I saw that come out was, um, so I'm married to my second husband right now. I, uh, my two daughters are beautiful product of my first marriage. And as I look back at 20 something year old Chris in that first marriage, pain avoidance, placating or appeasing, giving away my potential and striving for that perfection was so exhausting. It was something I, I worked so hard to do. And, you know, my, my husband at the time, he, I don't, I mean, neither of us knew this was going on in me. I was just coping. I was just going through life. I was unaware. The thing about fawning that's difficult or any kind of trauma response, when you turn a trauma response into a coping mechanism or a playbook, it gets in the way of who we are and what we're here to do. It's like a smoke screen. And I found over time that I spent so much time focusing on what others wanted from me and in trying to get people to like me because that made me feel secure that I neglected to find out who I was and what I was made to do. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that my husband, uh, Todd and I have been married for 19 years now. And this, you know, big trauma thing happened uh, to me three years ago. And I realized at that time in my healing process over the last about three and a half years now that I still had a fork in my hand, even in this great marriage that I have. So I've had this playbook of coping mechanisms, living in this trauma response as a way of life. And I didn't, I didn't even realize it. And yet a little bit about my husband, Todd and I, we met in 2003, I think. And uh, online, we were pioneers, you know, back then with the, with the dating, you know, meeting people online thing was very clean and very safe and a good way to meet. We would have never met otherwise. And yeah, our, it blended our families. I had two girls and he had two boys. So we've, uh, we've really enjoyed, you know, blending our family and, and all that that entailed. You said a very important point. You still had the fork in your hand. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this begs the question, well, how do you get the fork out? And we're going to let you talk about that very specifically. But that fork really doesn't come all the way out without Jesus. So before you go into maybe some of the specifics and and some of those steps, especially for those type A people that want a formula, (laughs) what do I do? How do I get the fork out? This metaphorical fork, because we probably all have them in some way from something in our past. But first, maybe you could just paint the picture a little bit. Where was God in your whole story? Did you find him as a child? Did you find him in your 20s? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I was raised in a spiritual family or religious family. I'd say we were Christmas and Easter Christians. We went to an Episcopal church just on the main big holidays. But I do remember a story when I think I was about six years old, five or six, was playing with a ball in the front yard of our ranch style house. And it went out into the street and I ran to the edge of the sidewalk and stopped at the curb. And a neighbor across the street was watering her yard saw the ball go in the street, came over and gave it back to me. And she said, good girl, Chrissy, why didn't you go out into the street and get the ball? That was good that you stopped. Why didn't you go get it? And I said, because Jesus told me not to. And I remember saying that, and the neighbor told my dad that story and he repeated it to me later, but I do remember that story vividly. And I do remember it was like hearing the Holy Spirit say, stop danger. So God 
has always been with me. I will say that that actually kind of tripped me up a little bit in my later years because I kind of felt like I was guilty by association. I had the good girl complex nailed, right? The good girl idea. I was homecoming princess. I went to Bible college. I was a virgin when I got married. You know, all of the things that you're supposed to do, I had all the boxes checked. But, you know, God is amazing in that he allows pain and trauma and hardship and even our own sin to come into our lives. He doesn't cause it. He allows it. And he allows us to go through hardship so that we can be healed. Trauma and pain can lead us to a place of discomfort where we got to find a solution. If we're comfortable, why move? Why why do anything? Why change? Why seek anything out? You know, these things are, they're great teachers. So to answer your question, I think I was baptized when I was eight years old, but faith has been a part of my life, my whole life. And I'm so blessed to have met a lot of amazing men and women along the way, mentors, teachers, professors, friends who have encouraged my faith. So God was in it. And I think that's probably why I didn't get checked into a facility or something (laughs) somewhere along the way, because uh, God really did sustain me, even though I still had a fork in my hand. So grateful for all that he's done in your story. And he did not leave you with the fork in your hand. Yeah. So listeners, get ready. If you are not in the middle of like driving or walking or doing something, you might actually want to get a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper. This is one of those you might actually want to take notes or or come back and re-listen to this after because you're going to you're going to get some pretty amazing uh soul food really mm-hmm. <laughs> about removing the fork. Mm-hmm. I love that segue. Because listeners, if you are not driving, if you are somewhere where you can grab a pen and a paper, I'm going to ask you to do your best to draw a picture of a fork, make it kind of thick. Cause I want you to write something on the handle of it in a bit. So draw a big picture of a fork on a piece of paper you don't care about. And let's dive in. How did I get the fork out of my hand? Cause it's gone now. Thank you, Jesus. It is gone. So in preparing for this conversation, I did write down some notes and put some thoughts to paper on how do you, how do we get the fork out? The first piece is forgiveness. And forgiveness is big. Forgiveness is, you know, it's interesting until about three years ago, I didn't really know what the definition of that word was. As Christians, at least in my neck of the woods, in my world, forgiveness is like, you know, forgiving and forgetting. That's what I've always thought like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm just going to minimize what happened. I'm going to blow it off now. And I'm just going to like, we're just going to let the wind sweep that away. That's not how that works. That's not how it works. It's not even biblical. Uh, But you know, that's a fawning thing, minimizing everything, taking a hit for the team while being the doormat forgiveness is the definition is releasing a debt. It's not dismissing it or minimizing it. In fact, we need to understand fully what the debt is that's owed in order to release it. If we don't know what it is, how can we let go of it? How can we, how can we give it back to God, right? How can we hand that over? So forgiveness is releasing a debt. Really important to remember that. One of the most effective tools the enemy uses to steal our joy is unforgiveness. And when the Bible talks about 
you know, having a chink in our armor. That's a big one. We don't want to give him that foothold to steal our joy and unforgiveness. Unforgiveness progresses to resentment, which leads to a root of bitterness that can poison our relationship with God and others. Forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. If you can picture forgiveness is something that happens between you and God. So it's, it's linear. Reconciliation is horizontal. It's, it takes two people willing to be authentic and vulnerable and address the issue, acknowledge the debt or the offense that's happened, and then to ask forgiveness and to give forgiveness. Reconciliation is a whole nother topic. That's a whole nother podcast. Forgiveness is not foregoing healthy boundaries. Uh, A friend of mine, Jen, told me a while ago, it stuck with me that boundaries are meant to keep love in. Oftentimes when we talk about boundaries, you know, we picture a fence or a fortress or something, and I'm locked in my fortress now and I'm keeping all of you out. But boundaries are meant to keep love in. So healthy boundaries are a huge part of that. So an example of that would be if I have a family member who has broken my trust, I can forgive that person. I can release that debt, but that doesn't mean I'm going to trust them again with pertinent information until they prove themselves trustworthy. That would be foolish of me to you know, give information again. Um, And so in order to keep love for that family member and not put them in a position where they're going to break my trust again, and then I'm going to get, you know, bitter or resentful, the boundary holds a safe place for that relationship. That makes sense. So forgiveness is hard and it should be, it's, you know, it's like cheap grace, right? We don't want cheap grace. Grace is not cheap. Jesus gave his his life for us and that cost everything. Um, Forgiveness is hard. If it's not difficult, we need to ask ourselves if we're fawning, you know, are we freezing? Are we in some trauma mode? Forgiveness requires looking at the truth. It's a choice. It starts with us in God. It can be very lonely to forgive, especially if, you know, if you're the one that's been so deeply hurt and you're the only one that's releasing or, or making a move to heal the other person who hurt you is oblivious or justifying or blame shifting. That can be a very lonely place to be in, but God's with us in it. So we need to remember that it's the right thing, you know, to do for our peace of mind and our health. Forgiveness is often a layered process and it ultimately leads to freedom. So forgiveness is the number one thing of how we get the fork out of our hands. The next thing I did to heal uh, from this fork was I was blessed to uh, be taught about something called a God concept. And this was revolutionary for me. And interesting, going back to your question about where was God in all this, I learned this when I was 22 years old and it stuck with me my whole life. I don't have notes on it anywhere. I just remember it. So our God concept, we get... The majority of us get the majority of our God concept from our dads. So mine was a little messed up, largely messed up. Okay. There are four false God concepts that are huge out there. The first one is that God is like Zeus. He's just up there in the clouds with a handful of lightning bolts, and he's watching us and waiting for us to mess up so he can zap us when we make a mistake. The next one is called the cruel chess player. God is like this bored deity that's up there moving us around on this chessboard like we're pawns. And he doesn't really care what happens to us. He's just moving us around. 
Kesarasara, whatever happens, happens. And he doesn't really care about what the end result is for us. The next one is the absentee landlord. And this concept is very clear. I don't, I'm not promoting this show, but I have watched some episodes of the TV show Supernatural on CW. And this actually quit watching the show because this is very prevalent in that TV show. The absentee landlord is like God had just created all of this threw us down here on the planet. And then he took off somewhere in the cosmos for some vacation. He's just gone. He's just out of here. And he's, he's not here helping us anymore. And the last false God concept is called the harsh ruler and picture, if you will, you know, God with his beard and his, in his, you know, toga robe or whatever. And he's got a measuring tape and he's holding this thing up and he's telling us to walk over to him and stand next to that measuring tape and see where we measure up. Are we good enough? Are we doing enough for the church? Are we being a blessing and not a curse? Are we tithing? Are we doing, are we checking all the boxes? Are we doing all the things, you know? that was mine. That was my God concept because for my dad in the family system, I was raised in perfection and image looking good, doing the right things. You know, all of those were values that were taught to me. So when I would mess up, my dad would physically cross his arms. Sometimes he'd kind of turn his back and look over his shoulder at me, or he'd give a heavy sigh and purse his lips, you know, or he'd get angry and yell. He had a hot temper. Uh, when I did well, my dad would tell me he was so proud of me. He would hug me. He'd, you know, show up and videotape whatever thing I was doing that was good. And it was usually things that made him look good. So the harsh ruler was my God concept. And I was so happy to learn that none of those are who God is at all. And we can know who God is because he left us his resume in first Corinthians 13. So, and James tells us that God is love and love is God. So we can interchange those words. So I'm going to read real quick. First Corinthians 13 verses four through eight. And that says, God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. God does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. So that does not sound like Zeus or a cruel chess player or an absentee landlord or a harsh ruler to me. Yeah, that's our Jesus. So the third piece for how to get the fork out of out of my hand, how I got the fork out of my hand was... I started delving into, and this is the last piece that happened over these last three years. I really started researching my own identity and I'm not talking about self-love. I am not a fan of the self-love movement. I don't think we're supposed to be focused on ourselves, but the Bible does say that we're supposed to love others the way that we love ourselves. So the Bible assumes we're taking good care of ourselves. And in that there's kind of an invitation to know who we are too something I want to tell your listeners is, is that we have all been equipped, gifted, purposed, and planned to do a unique work during our lifetime. We are not here by accident. I don't care what your origin story is. God put you here for a reason. And we have a calling 
there is something, many things sometimes that we're supposed to be doing. And when we're doing it, we get into that zone and it feels wonderful to be living our purpose out. So understanding who God designed me to be is the most powerful thing I did to heal from trauma and to remove my fork. And the way that we can do this, there's five points I'm going to give on this one. The first one's prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal who you are. He'll do it. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. He's a good God. He wants to give us these good things. And if we're asking him, Lord, please reveal to me who I am. What are my gifts? What are the talents you've built into my being, my personality, my motivations? So many of these things come from God and they are created into our very being. The next one I'm going to suggest is hire a life coach or a counselor. Oftentimes a professional is going to have you take an assessment or two. I actually have a program I do where I have people take four assessments and we blend them all together and there's patterns that emerge. And it's amazing to see where all the consistencies are and you can see the highlights. It's very obvious what your gifts and talents and skills are. Journaling is another good one. We can journal about our emotions. We can identify our core values, journal our dreams and our goals. When we write, it's an amazing brain exercise. And over time, you'll start seeing patterns emerge. The fourth one is trying new things and see what fits. I have a friend named Jill who had no idea what her identity was. She didn't know what she was good at. She wasn't sure. Like she hadn't even really identified any hobbies. So she and her adult daughter decided that they were going to do a new thing every month. And they, they cracked me up. They decided they were going to try lock picking. So they started locking all the doors on the house and they got all sorts of different locks and they like bought locks from the hardware store. And then they would get this picking kit and try to figure out how to unlock this, these locks. And then they were going to try a new non-alcoholic beverage, like a mocktail every month. And then they were going to try a new food that they never had every month. And so, and a new, um, like physical activity and just see what fits. So great idea. Very fun. And then the last thing is tell yourself the truth. That's huge. The garbage in garbage out adage is accurate scientifically our minds speak over 4,000 words a minute subconsciously to ourselves. So make sure we're telling ourselves the truth. I would say this is where time in God's word and worship, like a daily practice of being in God's direct word is so important because the Holy spirit will speak to us. He will show us things about ourselves. And if we've got God's word going through our brains every day, then hopefully our self-talk at the rate of 4,000 words per minute self-consciously is going to start coming through. So in conclusion, acknowledging our wounds and releasing the debts, healing our God concept and understanding and owning our God-given identity changes how we respond to trauma. I know it certainly has helped me to pivot real hard away from fawning and the forks out ladies, it's gone. There's not even a scar left. And now when something stressful happens or there's a a trauma where my body, don't get me wrong, my brain still goes into that trauma response, but now I'm aware of it. I can catch it. I know how to navigate through triggers and I can talk myself off that ledge real quick and recover very quickly and get out of that space. 
God actually redeemed my trauma and made my mess my message. And now I get to help women heal, reclaim trust, and redefine security as I help them find their identity. And the the last thing I want to leave you with is an acronym. Any guesses what the acronym is, Jessica? (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering if it maybe has four letters. It does. Good (laughs) guess. The acronym is FORK. So this will help you remember this story. So F is forgiveness. O is own your God-given identity. R is reconcile your God concept. And K is keep going. This is hard work. This is what they mean when they talk about hard work. There's a quote from Dr. Ted Roberts, who is one of my favorite mentors. And he says, pursue your own healing. Keep going. Pursue your own healing. Do the hard work. Do the deep dives. Get the therapy. Hire the coach. Read the books. Self-care, soul care. Those are all such important things. But keep going. If you're stuck, there are people that can help you get unstuck. There are people that can help you pull that fork out. I know I had a team helping me get through this season. So I asked the your listeners to draw a picture of a fork. Ask yourself the question, what's stabbing you? What's your pain point? Where is that coming from? I would love for you ladies to write down on the on the handle of that fork where your what your pain point is. What is your fork? Write it down on the handle. And then I would invite you all to tear that paper up or light it on fire. Let's give it to God and get rid of the fork. Yes, yes, yes. I hope there are so many listeners right now who are shredding up a piece of paper, lighting on fire. Great idea also. (laughs) There's so many, so many different ways to just completely let it go. I think I'm immediately reminded of Jesus saying, you know, come, come to me, I will carry your burdens Mm -hmm. and you don't have to carry it anymore. You don't have to have that wound there anymore. I will heal it. And I, I want to go back. Oh gosh. I mean, we could spend another three hours on this easily. <laughs> so many good things. So okay. Let's things. do it. I'll bring right? you coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. But uh, you, one of the points you made was to hire a life coach or a counselor, like get, get somebody trained to walk alongside you. And that kind of circles us all the way back to the very beginning of this episode, when you introduced yourself and explained your career, your, your job, your passion, your calling, what it is you do. And as promised, I wanted the listeners to kind of understand that a little bit more because I would not be surprised if several of them are going, uh, can I just sign up and, and talk to Chris every day? Like, (laughs) can she be my counselor or my life coach? So, uh, please before, before we close and pray over the listeners, would you explain a little bit, uh, about what you do and how listeners can connect with you? I would love to. Thank you, Jessica. Yes, I am a betrayal transformation and identity coach. So I work with women who have been through betrayal trauma, women who have been through infidelity. uh, There's unwanted sexual behavior from their spouse, but betrayal trauma comes from betrayal can come from many venues. So uh, I'll, that encompasses any, any betrayal situation. Majority of what I do is women who have been through um, sexual infidelity situations with their partners. 
Also, I work with women who maybe they have a great life, but they just have no idea who they are. They've, they've been so focused on other people or are so busy kind of being a Martha, right? Just busy, busy, busy getting all these things done that they've never, maybe they're empty nesters and now their kids are gone and now they're not a mom and that's filled their cup, their day, even their schedule. And now the kids are gone and they don't know who they are or what they want to do with themselves. I love working with women and helping them discover their God-given identity and helping them to leverage what it is that they're supposed to do next. My website is watermarkcoach.com. And I do offer a complimentary 15 minute consultation. So if anyone would like to meet me and talk about what they've got going on and see if we'd be a good fit, uh, I always uh, schedule those complimentary sessions so that there's no risk to either of us as we get to know each other a bit. Well, that that's amazing. I kind of feel like we just got a complimentary 45 minute with you to hear a little bit of just who you are and where your heart is and what you're doing. And I think it's amazing. I know so many women need you mm-hmm. and, and I hope that they will take advantage of your resources and your training and, and just your passion. And ladies, as always, all of the links that are mentioned in this episode will be in the episode notes. So you can find them there. Uh, if you do not have a pen handy to, <laughs> for to write this down. We always close with a prayer for the listeners and whether those listeners have experienced betrayal or are struggling with their identity or, or some other, some other fork, Mm -hmm. would you pray for the women uh, and for those forks to be removed? I will. I would love to. Thank you, father. Thank you for your faithfulness and that you are readily available to us 24, seven, 365. I thank you for your provision and for all the ways that you speak to us and tell us the truth and shower your love on us. And I just pray, Lord, for any woman listening to this, that she will feel encouragement, hope, camaraderie, to know that she's not alone, that she is loved, purposed, equipped, and called to a specific purpose that you have ordained, and it is good. So I just pray, God, that you would free every listener from the false beliefs, the family trauma, the insecurities, any of the chains that are binding them and keeping them from living their fullest life in you. I just pray for their freedom, Lord, and that you would wrap their loving arms around them. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for going back, uh, reliving hard memories. Thank you for sharing your story and the hopeful, happy ending and all that you learned from the trauma that you can now encourage and and bless and help others. It's pretty remarkable. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jessica. It was wonderful. Nice to talk with you today. I've loved it. And ladies listening, I hope you've loved it too. As always, we hope you are blessed and encouraged and that you have a crumpled up or burnt up piece of paper right about now. So (laughs) come back next time and join us for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.